I, I went a little beyond that. Um, so I need to change the title of that, but it's too late. I can't change it tonight. And I gave you, I gave you two handouts also uh, that will go with this lesson. Um, why don't we look at, let's look at the handouts first. Let's look at, let me see if I can find the one I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's look first at um, the one that's entitled Chronology of the 40-Year Exodus Journey. So these two handouts, this one and the other one, the timeline of the Exodus, are very similar. Uh, They're very similar in what what we're looking at here. Um, This one entitled The Chronology of the 40-Year Exodus Journey, years one and two, it's, it's a pretty... Uh, simplistic thumbnail sketch here to kind of help us understand what happens uh, as the children of Israel are leaving Egypt. So the nation leaves Egypt and arrives at Mount Sinai and stays at Mount Sinai for almost a year. Um, now remember, when they get to Sinai, they get to Sinai in the um, the third month. So let's look at year one here. So Remember, they leave, they have the Passover on the 15th of the month, the first month of the year. That's, the, that's um, called the month of Nisan, and it, it equivocates to our springtime. Uh, so in year one, in the first month, and it gives you the scripture references here, Exodus 12, 2. Uh, well, first of all, on the 10th of the month, they select the lambs. So they're going to sacrifice the lamb on the evening of the 14th, and then they're going to um, celebrate the Passover, and then they're going to leave on the 15th. But on the 10th, they select the lambs. Um, Now, this is a timeline study, so we're not going to get into a lot of this, but um, if, if if things work out the way I hope they do, Lord willing, we will uh, do a Passover Seder this year. And when we do the Passover Seder, we'll talk about the significance of selecting the lamb on the 10th day and sacrificing it on the 4th day. We'll cover all of that stuff when we do the Seder. But this is just a timeline. So 10th day, they select the lamb. Evening of the 14th, they kill the lamb, apply the blood to the to the lintel of the door and um, the death angel passes over. Then the 15th, the exodus commences. They leave Egypt and in the second month, a month later on the 15th, exactly a month from when they leave, they arrive at the wilderness of sin, exodus 16, 11. Then on the third month, the same day, and that either means on the 15th or it means on the first. Uh, there's debate about that. Um, they, I personally think it's the same day as they left, so I think this is the 15th. They arrive at the wilderness of Sinai, so they come to Mount Sinai. Now, there's a whole other film we could watch, and maybe we'll do that at some point, about Mount Sinai, because if you don't know it, the traditional Mount Sinai there is great debate as to whether the traditional Mount Sinai is the actual Mount Sinai. So the traditional Mount Sinai is actually not in, um, well, the Gulf of, of Aqaba, uh, where, we, where many people today now think the real Mount Sinai is, is on the, the western, I mean, on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the traditional Mount Sinai is farther west, there on the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and so there's debate as to which one is real. We're not going to really get into that. It's a very interesting debate, and there's very interesting information about these 
the one side in particular. Um, but what we do know, according to the scripture, is where they came to on the third month, the same day of the third month, they came to Sinai. And they camped at Mount Sinai uh, for almost a year, for 11 months. Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, is where Moses goes up and receives the Ten Commandments. So there at Mount Sinai, where the children of Israel are parked for 11 months, is where Moses goes up to the mountain, meets with God, receives the Ten Commandments, receives the law, receives all the things that we read in, um, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all the instructions in Exodus, all the instructions about the tabernacle and the furnishings. Moses receives much of that, if not most of it, on Mount Sinai, um, where they're camped for 11 months. Then in year two, in the first month of year two, they set up the tabernacle for the first time, Exodus 40, verse 17. So while they're camped there at Sinai for 11 months, they get the instructions, Moses gets the instructions about the tabernacle, and they begin building, sewing the fabric, assembling and smelting all of the metals, the, the bronze, the silver, the gold, in order to, tur to turn it into bases and rings. And they, they get all the wood, and they fashion all of the furniture out of wood, and then they plate it in gold. They do all of that while they're camped there at Sinai, at the base of um, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And then after they finish all that, then in year two in the first month, they set the tabernacle up for the first time. And then around this time, the laws in the book of Leviticus were likely given to Moses. And, and all of those laws that we have in Leviticus are recorded. So we know that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. And then on the 14th of year two, they commemorate the Passover again there in the wilderness. Then, and the Passover is in the first month. Then in the second month, um, Numbers 118, they take a census on the 14th. Uh, they celebrate a Passover again uh, for those unable to partake the previous month. Why would they not have been able to partake of the Passover? Anybody have any clues? Why, why might they not have been able to partake? Huh? Yeah, they could have been unclean. They, they, uh, so ritual impurity, um, you know, um, that, that's basically, and there's lots of reasons why they, they could have been, would have been unclean. Um, and so that provision remained, it remains for the Jews. If you're somehow traveling and you can't make it to Jerusalem, uh, the provision is there for you to be able to celebrate the Passover starting here, and it carries on still. Uh, of course, they don't, they don't celebrate in Jerusalem. That's why uh, if you go to a Jewish Passover Seder, it ends with next year in Jerusalem. Um, but here we're in the wilderness, uh, and they are commemorating the Passover for the second time now after coming out of Egypt. Um, and then on the 20th of the second month, they leave Sinai. And um, then it gets a little bit fuzzy. Um, we know that after they leave Sinai, they make their way to the entrance to the promised land and God sends 12 spies in. They spy out the land for 40 days. They come back and 10 give an evil report and 2 give a good report. And unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you um, believe about things, um, they, the people of Israel accepted the bad report and they wandered in the wilderness for almost 40 years, 
they didn't wander for 40 years because they've already been. They wandered really for about 38 years, but they wandered until that generation coming out of Egypt, every male over 20 years old died except for Caleb and Joshua. And so uh, the back of your little handout there has the approximate 38 years the nation wanders in the wilderness, the generation gradually dies out, and the second generation grows to adulthood. This was a time of testing and waiting until almost all the males from the first generation of the Exodus had died off. Um, No, not like in Abraham's time. And so, because they were wandering, like, you think they were like sick and starving? No, God fed them. God just made sure they died. They couldn't enter in. Yeah. So we don't know how old some of them were coming out of Egypt. Some of them could have lived very long lives if they were old men and women coming out of Egypt. So if they were... Um, so if you were 21 coming out of Egypt, you're only going to live to be about 60, 61 years old. Yeah. If you were that young coming out of Egypt. So that's a great point. So what does that tell us? What should we think about that? How should we think about that? What does that make us think about life and death? God knows, the number of our days. God knows the number of our days. That's right. He does. He certainly does. Then in year 40, any other thoughts there? In year 40, the second generation makes its way from the wilderness towards Canaan. They prepare to enter the promised land, and then they enter. Um, so if you look here at year 40, in the first month, Miriam dies. All the males 20 plus years leaving Egypt had died by this time. Uh, the fifth month, Aaron died. In the 11th month, Moses explained the law to the people. And uh, we know that Moses died. He did not see. He only saw the land from afar. Um, and then we have the crossing of the Jordan in year 41 into the promised land. So let's, um, let's look at this other little handout, some one-pager timeline of the Exodus. And I liked this one because uh, this one gave you, it just, it, it, what this, so there's a lot more that happened. So we know this about the Bible, right? The Bible is not an exhaustive record of God's story, of history. The Bible is an exhaustive record of what God determines we need to know. Which means there's a lot more things happening in God's created order in his world to bring about his plan and purpose. But God doesn't record it in his scripture because we don't need to know about it. But we do have history, we do have archaeology, and that's kind of the point of going through this timeline, is looking at what, what else is happening in the world. Um, and so when we look at this, for instance, which is, is this timeline of the Exodus, so it's, it's from year one to year 41. Uh, when you think about 41 years of history, or 40 years of history, there's a lot more that could be written. I mean, I've got a one-page summary here. <laughs> I mean, God is leaving out a lot, but he's not leaving out anything that we need. And we need to remember that. This is part of trusting God and trusting God's word. You know, and this is what you hear critics say. Well, you know, um, there's a lot left out and there's a lot that, uh, you know, why isn't this? Why don't all of these different accounts coincide? Why don't the four Gospels, why aren't they identical? Why are they different? Well, they're meant to be different. They're meant to be different. They're meant to give us different 
aspects, different things that we need to know, but they certainly don't tell us everything we could have known. And John alludes to this at the end of his gospel when he says if everything that Jesus would have done or everything that Jesus did was recorded, books couldn't, re couldn't hold it all. There was no way you could record everything that Jesus did. Just in his short life, if we want to talk about lifespan. I mean, Jesus probably didn't live beyond 33 years old. Uh, and so... In that short life, John says, everything that Jesus did, volumes, if it was all written and recorded, there, there wouldn't be enough volumes to, to hold it all. And so God never gives us everything we could know. He only gives us everything we need to know. And so I liked this little handout here because it just takes you through the scripture. And so based on what God gives us in his word, God tells us, he gives us the thumbnail sketch of what he feels, what he deems is necessary for us to know. Year one, month one, day 10, select the Passover lamb. Day 14, eat the Passover. Day 15 of, um, we, I'm sorry, I started to say day 15, you do the Exodus, but here, day uh, 15 of month two, you arrive in the wilderness of sin. Um, man is given for food in this period of time. The battle at Raphidim is, is recorded there. Uh, you can read about that in Exodus 17. Uh, then in year one, month three, day 14, exactly three months after the Passover, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And then they stay there for almost a year, 11 months, year two. So it just takes you through. I mean, did you realize that the tabernacle was built that quick? You read all that detail and you're, you're thinking about how long did it take to build that? They built the tabernacle and had it erected in less than a year. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how they did that in in specific terms, but it absolutely tells us how they did that. How were they able to, to fabricate and make all of that stuff in such a short period of time? Where did all that come from? They're in, the, they're in a desert. And they've been slaves for, as we looked at the timeline, for at least over two centuries if not four centuries, depending on how you look at, at that. How were they able to complete that and build all of that and do all of that in that short period of time? I mean, if you read the detail of the curtains and the rings and the lumber, all the things that they would need, it's quite amazing. I mean, they didn't have Singer sewing machines. To our knowledge, I don't know if they had looms or not. Did I run out? I wondered about that. It was a little low. Any thoughts? Where did all the gold come from? Didn't they bring a lot with them from Egypt when they left? Yeah. Yes. I mean, they brought everything. They brought clothing. They brought fabric. They bought, brought gold, silver, bronze, precious stones. Huh? But there are, there are at least 600,000 men. That doesn't count women and children. And Egypt is literally throwing things at them. Take it. I mean, God just supernaturally causes this giving. This, I mean, because God knew what they would need. And so they were given everything in abundance. So that when they got to Sinai, they had everything they needed. 
And they had already learned all the skills in Egypt. So all that time in Egypt, they weren't just, these guys weren't just making mud bricks. Now, a lot of them were, but if you don't know, if you don't believe, if you don't imagine that, that every skill imaginable that they would have needed, somebody learned that in Egypt. Because they were doing all sorts of things, making all sorts of things for the Egyptians. When God sent them out, he sent them out ready to do exactly what he had ordained them to do. And he gave them everything he needed. And they didn't even have to ask for it. And so it, it's amazing to me that they built and erected the tabernacle that quickly. But that's exactly what happened. And so, you know, when it says, it, it lists by name the two guys that were gifted to lead the building project. And, and I think sometimes we can read that and think that these two guys are building everything and doing everything. They're not. These two guys are the general, they're, they're the general contractors. They're the guys overseeing. And they're the guys making sure everything is done. And they have literally an army of artisans and craftsmen who are fashioning and fabricating all of the various pieces and putting it all together. And they're the guys that are making sure this is done to the exact specification. Because what if it's not done to the exact specification? What do we know about reading the accounts of, of how God, how seriously God takes the details of what he's telling people to do? I mean, there was never a time when they said, oh, uh, three and a half cubits. Eh, you know, you're, 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 you're three and three eighths cubits. That's good enough. No, there was nothing like that. I mean, it was built to exact standards to perfection because that's what God demands. You know, the old saying, the devil is in the details. Actually, he's not. God's in the details. God is the one in the details. And we know that because we read the scripture. It's like reading numbers. People say, what is the point of all these numbers? Well, the point of all these numbers is to let us know that God is absolutely in the details. All the people we deem nameless and faceless and unimportant, not to God. I mean, if God's, if the hairs of our head are numbered, why should we wonder why God would number all the people in a tribe? And, and he would, in tiresome repetition, go through these numbers. It's tiresome to us, but it's not tiresome to God. And it shouldn't be tiresome to us because it should be comforting to us that God never grows tired of making sure that all the details of our life, of his plan and of his purpose, are exactly the way they should be. So when we're freaking out, wondering... What the heck is going on? Why can't I get a call back from the doctor? Why can't I get an appointment before two months down the road? Why this? Why that? We should be going, you know what? God's not freaking out here. And what I don't know, God absolutely does know. And what I need to know, I should trust that God will reveal to me. Now, that doesn't relieve us, obviously, of our responsibility in things. But, you know, these things are given to us here in the Scripture because they really do teach us a lot. And this is why Paul says these, these things are written for us. They're examples for us. Not just their sin, not just their faith, but the way God worked in the midst of all of this should be great comfort to us. So we go through this little sheet here, and it just... You know, the first year and the second year, a lot of stuff happens all the way up to year two, month two. And the spies are sent from uh, Kadesh in, Paran, in the Paran Desert. So they're sent from there into the promised land. They cross the Jordan and they go into the promised land. Numbers 13, 3 through 26, and they spy out the land. 
They come back and they wander for 38 years because Israel did not believe God. And then in year 40, you have the deaths recorded. And by the time they enter the promised land, by the time Joshua leads them across the Jordan and they fight the battle of Jericho, all of the generation that was born in Egypt, 20 20 years and older, has died. And none of them, save Joshua and Caleb, enter the promised land. All right, any questions about any of that. That's just kind of a, a little timeline for you to look at and um, to kind of help you get a bigger picture of, of what's happening there. There's a lot more detail that could be covered, but um, then we really would get bogged down in the weeds. Um, now, to the, uh, to the sheet that I... Um, that I printed out for you that I made titled Lesson 10, Chronology of the 40-Year Exodus. That starts with 1491 B.C. when Moses leads God's people. He leads the, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. 1451 B.C., this is when Joshua leads God's people into the land of Canaan. So we have a 40-year span of time between Moses leading them out of Egypt and Joshua leading them into Canaan. And that's what uh, we just talked about. Um, Those two handouts kind of tell you what's happening in in that 40-year period of time between leaving and coming and entering in the Promised Land. Now, 1451 B.C., Joshua leads them into the land of Canaan. And in the same year, Joshua begins the conquest of the land of Canaan. And we know what was the first battle fought. The first city they take is Jericho. Um, They take Jericho as the first city. You know, this is also where the the kings come together and they, um, they come together to try to defeat the children of Israel. But, of course, they're conquered and um, well, while those five kings are coming together, there's another group of, of uh, Gentiles who are a little bit smarter than the other guys. And they said, man, if, uh, if we join with, with our buddies over here to fight the Israelites, I think we're going to come out on the bad end of this thing. What we need to do is pretend like we're a people from a faraway land and we just come into this, uh, this land and see if we can get them to take us in. And we'll just even tell them, we'll be your slaves if you'll just uh, let us join you and be part of you because we've heard of your fame and we've heard of what your God has done. And uh, they really were people in the land, but they made the Israelites think that they were people from a faraway land because they brought their old wineskins and their moldy bread and, and their tattered clothes and they looked like they were journeying for a long time, but really they weren't. And, and it was the Gibeonites. And so um, Israel swears allegiance, swears that they'll protect them. And then they find out, hey, you guys have been here all along. You tricked us. Well, yeah, we did because we were afraid that you would kill us and you would have. So now we're just your slaves and we're happy to, to be that for you. And Israel's like, well, we gave, we gave him our word. We swore to the Lord, so we, we, can't, we can't kill him. So you're going to chop wood and carry water for us the rest of your days. And they're like, fine with us. But their friends who hate Israel and are now going to fight them decide they're going to get the Gibeonites. And so Joshua comes and they fight him and they rescue them. So all this is happening in the right at the very beginning of Israel coming into the land. And uh, in the same year, in 1451, they begin to till the ground in Canaan. So up until this time, what, how has God been feeding them? What's he been giving to them? Manna. So when they entered Canaan and they began to eat the fruit of Canaan until the ground, the manna stops. 
And now they have their own crops. They can grow their own crops. And so they begin to till the land. In terms of counting sabbatical years, this is when this begins. So for Israel, it was that first tilling of the land in the autumn of 1451 that the sabbatical years begin to be counted. What, what do we mean by the sabbatical years in terms of tilling the ground? What did God tell them to do? This is important for our timeline. We'll see the importance of this as we continue in our timeline. Why is the counting of the sabbatical year important in terms of tilling the land? That, and what did God tell them to do? What, what, in terms of agriculture, what was the sabbatical year? That's right. Yes, on the seventh year, they were to let the land rest. So every seventh year, God commanded them that they would let the land rest. So you till, you plant, you harvest for six years. In year seven, you don't till, you don't plant. And if you harvest, you only harvest what's already growing naturally there, but the land is fallow. And then in year eight, so seven is the number of what? Some people say perfection, but it's really the number of completion. And eight is the number of what? New beginnings. And so in year seven completes the sabbatical cycle. Year eight is the new cycle. And so in year eight, they plant again, plant and harvest for six years. So every seventh year, they were to let the land rest. Now, this is important because as we go forward in the timeline, we're going to come to a point where God sends his people into captivity for 70 years. Why 70 years? Well, when we get there, we're going to see the scripture tells us it's 70 years because it's for all the Sabbaths they didn't let the land rest. Um, and so Israel wasn't counting, but God was. And every year they didn't let the land rest, God marked that. And said, oh, you didn't let the land rest. You did not obey my commandment. And God marked it. And when God sent them into captivity, he said, you're going to be in captivity for 70 years so the land can rest. Because that's, that's how long you did not allow the land to rest. So if you won't let the land rest, I'll just take you out of the land so it, it can rest. God gives us a Sabbath. And he commands us to observe that Sabbath every week. Many people don't. And this is what I always tell people. If you don't rest, God will make sure your body gets the rest it needs. He may put you in the hospital. He may put you flat on your back. But eventually, God will cause your body to get the rest that it needs. If you will not rest it regularly the way God commands you to, you will come to a point in time in your life when God will get that rest from your body that you refuse to give it. It's always better to obey God. Always better to obey God. So they uh, begin to till the land, and this begins the marking of the sabbatical years uh, that are reckoned from the beginning of this year. 1445 B.C., Joshua divides the land so remember, as they are getting ready to come in, there is one tribe um, and a half, the half-tribe of Manasseh. And I think it was Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh took their land on the, west, on the east side of the Jordan. And, um, and then the other tribes, they took their land on the west side of the Jordan. And so in 1445... Uh, Joshua begins to divide the land on the west side of the Jordan between the, between the nine remaining tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. At this time, Caleb is 45. It's 45 years after his, he first entered the promised land. So he was 40 years old when he spied out the land. He came back and said, come on, guys, we can take the land. And uh, 
the children of Israel said, no, nope, no, nope, you're crazy. They're like giants. We're like grasshoppers. And so Caleb had to wait 40 years. Now he's in the land, and it's been plus five years because they're, they're fighting and, and taking the land. Now, 45 years after entering Canaan, he says to Joshua, he says, I, I want my land now. And so Joshua says, go take your land. And so Caleb has the mountain land, the hill land, and this is where the Anakim, the giants, live. And so Caleb, when he's 85 years old, goes up the mountain, defeats the giants, and takes his land 45 years after first entering the land of Canaan. That's a long time to wait for your promise. But he, he patiently waited, and he trusted God that whole time. It was also in that year, in 1445 B.C., uh, that Israel sets up the tabernacle at Shiloh. The word Shiloh, uh, it's believed, is um, very similar to Salem, Jerusalem. It's a word that means peace. And so after the land was subdued and God gave Israel peace, the nation came together in the place that God chose for his name to dwell forever. Now, this is not Jerusalem yet, but it's Shiloh. And Shiloh is where the tabernacle was, was, was put up. It was erected there. And the tabernacle and the ark remained in that place for 328 years. Then in 1413... So if we do the math, we're 38 years from the time that the conquest of Canaan begins. And so by this time, Joshua has died and the elders that were with Joshua who outlived him, all of those elders die and so after the death of Joshua and the elders that outlived him, the time of the judges begins. And at that time, in Judges 17, verse 6, it says that every man began to do what was right in his own eyes. So the time of the judges begins. So Remember Gideon, he was a judge, 1245 B.C. Gideon delivers Israel from the Midianites. Remember, that's when uh, he tries to assemble this giant army, and God says, no, you got too many guys. Gets it down to 300 guys, and he says, all the ones that uh, lap up like a dog, uh, those are the ones you want. And he said, I don't want you to use swords. I just want you to take some clay jars, some torches, and some, some horns. And, and this is how you're going to meet, you're going to defeat this uh, army. Actually, you're not going to defeat them. I'm going to defeat them, this army of over 100,000 men strong. Uh, you're going to have 300 guys with, J, with, with clay jars, torches, and bugles. And this is how you're going to beat them. Sounds like a recipe for victory, right? But Joshua didn't, I mean, Gideon didn't think so either. He, he tested God, and God patiently you know, allowed him to do that um, because God wanted to show not just Gideon, but God wanted to show us that God doesn't need overwhelming force and everything we think we need to conquer our enemies. We just need faith in God. God is more than big enough to conquer any enemy that we will ever face. So that's 1245 B.C. I'm just kind of hitting some highlights here. 1206 B.C., God gives Israel over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. 1184 B.C., we'll intersperse some world history here. So while the judges are judging Israel, and Israel is fighting Philistines and Ammonites and Midianites, while this is all happening in Israel, in the land of Canaan, in 1184, Troy is destroyed by the Greeks in the Trojan War. Just 400 years before the first Olympics are held in Greece. Now, do you know that for centuries, until the mid-1800s, the Trojan War was just a myth. 
No serious historian or archaeologist really believed that it was real because there was no evidence of a Troy. There was no evidence that that city existed. And surely if there was a city like that, there would be some kind of evidence. And so it was just considered a legend, a myth. And there was this German guy, this German archaeologist, historian, can't remember his name right now. I, I should know it, but I don't remember it. But um, in, in the mid-1800s, uh, he believes that this thing is real, and he, sure enough, goes to the coast of Turkey, and he starts digging around. And he finds a lot of things um, that relate to this era, and the Greeks... Now, the Greeks at one time kind of controlled this area um, because of Alexander. You know, he, he went all over the place. But this is way, way before any of that. And, and so the Greeks on the Greek peninsula there uh, have been in existence for a long time. And the Mycenaeans who came from uh, the people from Crete really came up to the Greek peninsula, and they're the ones that influenced the Greeks and kind of Greek culture that it's believed came from the island of Crete and the, the Mycenaean culture. And then you have these city-states, Sparta and Athens are city-states that have existed for thousands of years. Greece is not a country, it's just these people groups that have these city-states, and this is kind of what's happening in Greece. And I don't know if you guys know the story of the Trojan War. Do you know how it started? Anybody know? How did it start? Helen. Helen. Who was Helen? She was Agamemnon's brother's wife. Yeah, yeah. She was the wife of a king. And uh, the Greeks had a beauty contest, and they invited the Trojans to come over and judge it. And um, Paris the prince of the Trojan king comes over and uh, falls in love with Helen. And, of course, there's Greek gods and goddesses involved in this because uh, Aphrodite, actually, it's a beauty contest of the gods. And, uh, and Aphrodite said, if you, if you judge me the most beautiful, I'll give you the most beautiful woman on earth as your wife. And so Paris says, sure, you're the most beautiful. And she wins the beauty contest, and the most beautiful woman on earth was Helen, uh, the king's wife. And so they fall in love, and Paris takes her back to Troy, and so begins the Trojan War that lasted for many, many, many years. Well, this German historian, guess what he finds on the coast of Turkey there? He finds the ruins of a massive city that has been burnt to the ground. Just like the legend says, he finds this here. It's like, well, it's right where the legend says it should be. It's, it's burnt to the ground just like the historical accounts that Homer and um, what's the other guy's name? You had Homer who wrote the Greek version and you had, uh, who's the guy who wrote the Roman version? Virgil. Virgil wrote the Roman version. Uh, virgin. <laughs> wrote the, the, the Roman version. Uh, and so now, we don't know for sure, but we do believe that that actually, this is real. And if you read historians, ancient historians, nobody doubted that it was real. And so... While Israel is being ruled by judges, here we are. Um, Troy is being destroyed by the Greeks. Um, and what's happening is, unknowns to Israel and unknowns to the Greeks. So the defeat of Troy is important because what this did is it, it, it gave Greece a power in that region that it did not have before. It defeated its rival power, and it has set the stage for Greece to grow and become what it will eventually be. I mean, this is 1184 B.C. It's going to be um, 
how many centuries is that? 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. In about 800 years from the time Troy is destroyed, Greece is going to become the power in the world. And that, the roots of that, the seeds of that, I, I think in large part, took a great leap forward right here with the, de the defeat of the Trojans and the establishment of these powers on the Greek peninsula. Then in 1156, the judges are still ruling Israel. God gives Israel over to the Philistines again for 40 years this time. So you got God gives him over to the Philistines. Israel repents. So the Philistines rule him for 18 years. They repent. And then they're good for three or four or five or six or eight years or 10 years. And then they go back to their idolatry. Well, here in 1156, God gives them over to the Philistines again for 40 years. The year prior to that, Samson is born. Remember the story of Samson. And Samson eventually delivers Israel from the Philistines when he grows up. 1117, Samson defeats the Philistines in his own death. In that same year, the ark of God is captured and Eli dies. Remember the story when Eli uh, is sitting there at the tabernacle and the messenger come and says, your sons have died and the ark of God has been captured. And Eli is so shocked, he falls over backwards in his chair and breaks his neck. The Bible says because he was a very heavy man and he dies in keeping with what God had told Eli through little Samuel, the prophet that God was raising up. So Samuel becomes the first prophet and the last judge. Uh, 1117, Samson defeats the Philistines. Um, then, and, and then we know Samuel now has been raised up in 1095 B.C., so that's what, 22 years after the death of Eli, Saul is anointed king of Israel. So Israel doesn't want judges anymore. Israel has watched its neighboring nations, its enemies. They have kings. Why can't we have a king? And finally, God relents and he says to his prophet, to the last judge, if they want a king, give them a king. It was all part of God's plan. And so Saul is anointed king in 1095. In 1085, 10 years after Saul is anointed king, David is born to Jesse. So think about this. While all of this is happening, there is Naomi and Ruth coming back from Moab because they went there to escape the famine. And Naomi and Ruth come back. And somewhere in this time period, Ruth meets Boaz. And Boaz marries her and becomes her kinsman redeemer. And born to Ruth and Boaz is Obed. And born to Obed is Jesse. And born to Jesse is David. Ten years after Saul is anointed king. Then in 1063, where we'll stop tonight, Saul is rejected by God. Why was he rejected by God? Well, there was a couple of reasons. Remember, he didn't kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, like God told him to. He didn't kill the king. He didn't kill all the animals. He didn't kill everyone down to the animals like God commanded him to. And so Samuel comes, takes the sword and chops Agag up and tells Saul that you've disobeyed God and the kingdom is going to be taken from you. Then when they are getting ready to go to battle and Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice so they can go into battle and Samuel is late and Saul becomes impatient 
And Saul takes it upon himself to offer sacrifice to God. Now, this is important because this goes back to God being in the details. And so Saul thinks, what's the big deal? I'm the king. I worship God. I'm a believer in God. Why do I have to wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifice? I'll offer the sacrifice. It doesn't really matter who offers the sacrifice as long as God gets the sacrifice right. I mean, that sounds like our reasoning today, doesn't it? It doesn't matter who we marry as long as we love the person we marry because love is love. It doesn't really matter how we define marriage as long as we're committed to one another. It doesn't matter how we worship God as long as we worship God. As long as we're sincere, it doesn't really matter how we worship God. No, actually, it does matter. And God shows us exactly here how much it matters because Saul offers the sacrifice. He slaughters the bull. He gets ready to go into battle. And just as he has offered the sacrifice, Samuel comes and he says, Saul, what have you done? Well, I offered the sacrifice to God. You were late and we got impatient. We got tired of waiting for you. You were supposed to be here an hour ago and you're late. And Saul says, I mean, Samuel says to Saul, this day the kingdom is ripped from you. And this is where Samuel tells Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. God didn't say you could offer the sacrifice. God said, I'm the one that's supposed to offer the sacrifice. And we say, well, it doesn't really matter as long as, long as God gets what he wants. No, God says, no, it absolutely doesn't matter. God tells us to do things a certain way because they're the way God commands us to do them. And obedience is better than sacrifice. And that is a lesson that is still extremely valuable for us today. It's why God put that bit of his story in the Bible. Lots of other things he could have put there that he didn't put there, but he put that in there because it is necessary for us to know that to obey is better than sacrifice. All right, that brings us uh, past the end of our study today because it's 732. Sorry about that.